0: Welcome to the Christmas edition of the Dialogue Gospel Study Program. As current chair of the Dialogue Foundation Board and one of the moderators for the Dialogue Gospel Study Program, I'd like to thank you for supporting Dialogue in all its forms. We welcome financial contributions, of course. Contributions are necessary for the long-term viability of Dialogue and other publications in a world where a huge amount of content is available online without an explicit charge. This is true for Dialogue, as well as other publications. All 58 years of the Dialogue journal, including the current issue, are available online without a charge or behind a firewall, as are all of our digital offerings, including the Dialogue Gospel Study Program, which is the most likely vehicle through which you are seeing this introduction. Because Dialogue is at heart a quarterly print journal, the oldest independent Mormon studies journal, We greatly value subscriptions. Subscriptions do contribute in meaningful dollars and cents way and at the same time make us feel like dialogue continues to fulfill its mission. But most of all, most of all, we thank you for reading and watching and listening. Dialogue exists for the benefit of readers and viewers like you. You make dialogue meaningful and important just by paying attention. Thank you. Now with my Please Contribute pitch out of the way, let me welcome you to a collection of vignettes by the Dialogue Board, including longtime members and new members, and our editor and our business manager. Whether you are listening as we broadcast or view viewing this as a recording found on our website or our YouTube channel, please accept this as an expression of thanks for your participation and attention as a peek into the hearts and minds of a few of the real people behind dialogue and with our best wishes for you for a joyful and christ-centered christmas season
1: hello as we enter this christmas season my thoughts have been on a topic that frankly isn't exclusively christmasy but it's been on my mind for some time and that's the topic of divine love and whether the love that god has for each of us is best described as unconditional If you go back 25 years in the church, the question of whether God unconditionally loves us would have been uncontroversially answered in the affirmative. Only in the last two decades has this become a fraught topic for Latter-day Saints, a development I think is very unfortunate. We might read certain scriptures and notice the love described as coming with conditions and wonder what this means about how God feels about us. Think about what we mean when we utter these sentences. I love my spouse. I love my children. I love my dog. I love my car. I love God. In each of these exclamations, the word love refers to a deeply felt emotional state, a posture of care, concern, attachment, or regard directed toward another being or thing. To be sure, the precise meaning of the word love is not identical in each sentence, or at least it hopefully isn't, but each of the meanings of love here is a species of deeply felt emotion. In ancient scripture that has been translated into English, however, the word translated as love doesn't typically refer to an emotion. When it talks about love, especially divine love, ancient scripture is often talking about something else something that would be better translated into modern English as covenantal loyalty or covenantal duty, or in other words, the duty to respond to others in a particular way pursuant to the covenant one has entered into with them. And yes, ancient scripture absolutely does talk about this love as if it's conditional. But virtually all modern English speakers, including LDS speakers in religious contexts, tend to use the word love in the emotion sense, regardless of the object of their love. Meanwhile, the scriptures are often using it in the covenantal loyalty sense, And this is a very important thing to know for you can't take a scripture about one love concept and apply it, apply what it says to a completely different love concept, just because the two concepts happen to go by the same word in English. If they're different concepts, they're different concepts. We need to avoid applying what the scriptures say about the one to the other. When I told investigators on my mission that God loved them, I wasn't making a technical point about covenants that might come later. I was simply building on what I hoped was a very basic shared belief that I and my probably Catholic or Protestant investigator shared. Because of the perception that too many modern believers think that God loving them means he's indifferent to their behavior, there's sometimes a tendency to want to lean into this belief and say that using the adjective unconditional, saying God has unconditional love for us, is therefore inappropriate. After all, the word unconditional doesn't appear in the scriptures, right? But who cares that the word unconditional doesn't appear in the scriptures? That may be true, but so what? To harp on that when we're talking about the emotion of love is to concede that love implies approval, which it manifestly does not. If my daughter wants to go to the club, I prohibit her, and she then insists that my refusal to let her go means I don't love her, I'm not going to grant her point. I'm not going to say, that's right, my dear, if I loved you, I'd let you do whatever you want. Since I'm not letting you, I must not love you. Instead, I'm going to insist that she misunderstands what love means, that love means I put boundaries on her that I think are best for her and that my approval or disapproval of what she does can change across circumstances, but this is distinct from my unfeeling love for her. What Latter-day Saints ought to be saying to each other, as well as to outsiders, is, yes, God unconditionally loves you. He doesn't unconditionally approve of your behavior or unconditionally bless you, but he does unconditionally love you. He unconditionally feels the emotions of care, concern, attachment, and regard toward you that he feels. Anyway, during this Christmas season, I hope we can all remember that wherever we are in our faith journeys and whether we think we are doing what God would have us do or not, there shouldn't be any question about the emotions he feels towards us about whether he loves us. Merry Christmas.
2: Merry Christmas from dialogue. I wanted to share one of my favorite Christmas hymns of all time. The, uh, song I heard the bells on Christmas day, which was based originally on a poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow during the Civil War. It's uh, a song that every time I hear it, I cry. So I'm going to try to not cry on this particular occasion. But it was um, uh, something that came particularly important to me over the last several years as I feel like we are experiencing in our own country, in our own world, Uh, Some significant divisions and the song just speaks to those in such a profound way and it it tells the story of uh, Longfellow himself who was um, who hears the bells the Christmas bells during the the context of the Civil War and this is the the poem uh, that becomes a song of course I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play. And mild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the heartstones of a continent and made forlorn the, house, the households born of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I hope that we have the same. I hope that we have the same. Prayer in our own hearts. Thanks. Merry Christmas.
3: When my wife and I first got engaged, we were invited to spend Christmas in Stockholm, Sweden, with my friend Dina. And uh, when we arrived, it was so incredibly cold and dark. And we wandered around the city getting lost. Um, I was getting frostbite. It was really dreary and freezing. And then we went into my friend's home, and they were having uh, Christmas Eve dinner, what they called Yule Board. And it was so full of warmth and food and family and friendship. And I had never felt that profound feeling of Christmas before of a kind of defiance against the dark, defiance against the cold, that there is hope in the birth of our Savior, and that there is light in the darkness. And we have carried on that tradition every year. We host uh, an annual Yule board party, and it's our favorite day of the year because we can share the love that we have for Jesus with our friends and family, with warmth, And light and laughter and love. And to me, those are the feelings of Christmas, the feelings that we get from our Savior Jesus Christ.
4: Hello and Merry Christmas. My name is Linda Hoffman Kimball, and I'm a member of the Dialogue Board. I want to share some thoughts with you about this season and experiences I've had with art and Christmas. Back in 1973, I picked up a friend's copy of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. I was a fresh convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, having been baptized in 1971 during my college years at Wellesley College, where I studied art history. This was after waiting a few years for my parents to recognize that my commitment to the restored gospel was not an adolescent whim. I'd always been a committed Christian and was surprised to find myself being courted by the Spirit to align myself with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wasn't familiar with Dialogue at the time, but I picked up a copy that a friend had of Dialogue. This was from 1973. Um... And uh, I picked it up and I opened to a remarkable essay by Frank Odd called Mary's Response and Mine. In it, Brother Odd describes the encounter Mary has with the angel Gabriel, who announces to her that she will be the mother and the savior of the savior of the world. Brother Odd then follows Mary through her awe, astonishment, and humility, given this news. He describes her reaction this way. The words she speaks in submission to the charge laid on her, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, reflect not so much comprehension as a courageous openness. In the midst of her perplexity, she has the humility to respond to that which she senses to be good, even when the service rendered cannot be fully grasped. Angels can announce the gospel to us, but only we can get it into our bones. Fast forward to 1994, when I was visiting Washington, D.C.'s National Gallery of Art, eager to see the newly cleaned and restored original painting of John, Jan van Eyck's The Annunciation. I have a picture here show you. Yeah, that. It reminds you of what it is. Uh, The episode captured the scripture which uh, Brother Ott wrote about back in 1973. The crowds at the National Gallery were huge, and the line to see the restored original was long and serpentine. To amuse patrons on the slow path to the painting were placards describing the restoration process to inform us and distract us As uh, distract us along our sojourn to the actual picture. Through those placards I learned that centuries of dust and the aging of the original preservatives had darkened the image. I learned how science, technology, and human hard work had successfully brought the painting back closer to its original luster and vibrance. Despite all I gleaned from those placards, I was not fully prepared for what I saw when it was my turn to lay eyes on the masterpiece. Right off, I was not prepared for the vavoom radiance of the rainbow colors of the angel Gabriel's wings. See if I could show those off. Look at that rainbow, of blue and yellow and red. I, I doubt the video was capturing it the way that it impacted me at that moment. Right off, I was not prepared for that experience of the vibrance of his wings. There is iconography everywhere in this painting, and that could take decades to plumb. One grace note for me was Mary's response to to Gabriel's uh, comment to her. Where's Gabriel commenting? Hail Mary, I, I assume. Um, and then we have a picture of Mary replying. It's very hard to, to see in, in this image, but um, right here in the painting, these are her words, which she says in reply to the question or the announcement uh, made by the angel Gabriel, but not to him but instead to God themselves, himself, God. Um, With uh, the words she speaks in response to the charge laid on her, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, reflect not so much comprehension, but a courageous openness. That's Frank Odd's description of Mary when she encounters Gabriel. I stood in the presence of that vibrant Gabriel and a courageous Mary in the National Gallery. I noted that Van Eyck chose to highlight the intimacy of Mary's response to God by painting her words upside down and backwards so that only God could hear, or in this case, read it. I love that personal connection between an individual, the Blessed Mary, and God, that God and Mary have their own conversation. With the centuries of grime and darkness removed by the restoration, in this case of the painting, but perhaps in more meta ways, we each are invited personally and intimately to to echo Mary's humble, eager words in our own lives with courageous openness as we contemplate the miracle of the Babe in Bethlehem, the King of Creation, the Holy Balm for all the woes of mortality, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas.
5: Merry Christmas. We know so little about Jesus' birth, we probably celebrate it in the wrong season. There are multiple reasons to think it probably happened in the spring, but Let's not think about that, because my favorite Christmas hymn is In the Bleak Midwinter, and I'd really hate to give that up. We know even less about his mother, Mary, but we know enough to be profoundly impacted. After love, my favorite word in Scripture is ponder, to think deeply and carefully about something, perhaps for a very long time. Mary, a young teenager of limited education and experience, showed us how to respond to the things of God. Scripture says she pondered the angel's greeting to her as the favorite one. She pondered the experiences she had around Christ's birth. And what do we know of her pondering? We know she listened to the angel. We can listen wholeheartedly, humbly, and without prejudice. We know she asked questions. She dialogued with God through his angel. And then she pondered. I imagine she pondered long and hard. Alone and, and with Joseph and with Elizabeth at least. I've been drawn to Mary since I was a child. I've always seemed to be cast as either Gabriel or Mary in school and in church pageants. So annually I re-memorized and reconsidered their words in Scripture. I've also never been able just to accept what doesn't make sense. But I was drawn to the gospel and to religious life, despite their many unanswered questions. And Mary inspired me. Admittedly, I too often don't fully embrace even what I come to believe is true. I don't think hard enough about things which initially seem wrong. I don't listen, question, or ponder with complete integrity and vigor. But I try. I support dialogue as an enterprise because it helps. Mary must have pondered hard all her life. Imagine her mission. And the scriptures tell us she didn't always have all the answers. Note the child Christ's visit to the temple to be about his father's business, in defiance of Mary and Joseph's direction. Last week at BYU-Hawaii's Commencement, our new Apostle, Elder Kieran, picked up on Mary's story. Pointing to her as one of three scriptural figures who took the hand of God to go out into the darkness. (coughs) That step into the darkness follows and includes pondering. When we don't fully understand, we can look to Mary, reach for God's insight and comfort, Trust it will come in time. Keep thinking and asking and, yes, stepping into the darkness. And may we, like Mary, have a partner like Joseph or a friend like Elizabeth also willing to reach for God's hand and to share both the darkness and the light with us. May we be such partners to others. I hope you have the merriest Christmas. And I hope that in a quiet moment, you will think a bit about Mary. Merry Christmas.
6: Good morning. I would like to talk today about a very special Christmas song. It's the first Christmas song that we know anything about, and it comes directly from the book of Luke. It consists of the prophetic words that Mary speaks when she first learns that she's carrying the Messiah in her womb. The title of this song is Magnificat, which is Latin for magnify, which is the first word that Mary speaks. The full text reads as follows. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Luke 1 46 through 55. The list of composers who have set this text to music is more or less the same as the list of every composer that most of us have ever heard of, and then some. These settings include some of the most beautiful sacred music ever produced, but there's a downside. The beauty of the music and its liturgical prominence across denominations can blind us to the truly radical and even subversive message that Mary delivers. The Mary who delivers Magnificat is not the Queen of Heaven sitting on her throne. She is a poor, pregnant, unmarried teenager living in the shadow of a great empire and singing a song about bringing down the powerful from their thrones and sending the rich away empty. This isn't a vague message of peace and goodwill to all. It's a political statement about God's love and even God's preferential love for the lowly and the abused. The Magnificat is a beautiful and self-contained poem that is also a revolutionary prophecy. It begins with Mary marveling at the goodness of God who has elevated an unimportant, common person like her to an almost unimaginable greatness from there, Mary generalizes. Raising poor and insignificant people to great heights is what God does. It's the essence of his sovereignty. And the flip side of this is also important. He reduces wealthy and powerful people to insignificance. His kingdom dramatically reverses the organizing logic of human societies. This idea makes rich white guys like me feel real uncomfortable. But there's not much I can do about that. It's the plain meaning of the words themselves. We can only dismiss them by doing grave violence to the text. Furthermore, as the Magnificat is the longest block of text spoken by a woman anywhere in the New Testament, we can't dismiss its core ideas without distorting the Bible's portrayal of women. By placing these words in the mouth of Mary, Luke intentionally includes women in the category of people who have been oppressed by society but will be elevated by the Lord. This passage tells us something about the logic of heaven. It tells us that we are going to have to look for God among poor people, refugees, immigrants, weak people, and those despised by society, because that is where God is always going to be.
7: I'm Jay Kirk
6: Richards,
7: and when I was a young teen, I attended a music camp at Brigham Young University, and we sang a song with these lyrics men into plowshares beat their swords nations shall learn war no more my prayer for 2024 is that we will get closer to fulfilling this prophecy that nations shall learn war no more so that every person beneath their vine and fig tree will live in peace and unafraid Merry Christmas.
8: Hi, I'm Emily Jensen. I do um, lots of work for Dialogue and have loved doing that for many years. I am excited to be able to come to you guys with a small Christmas message. Mine is on the theme of genealogy. Um, Every, I don't know, 10 years or so, I get bitten by the genealogy bug. And I have been um, this season and have been working on a big family history project. I am listening to old recordings of, um, family members who I interviewed back 20 plus years ago. And it's been absolutely wonderful to hear their voices, hear them tell their stories. Some of them have passed. And so to hear their voices again, um, as if from the dust and it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful and, and just such a joy to be able to be working on this again. Um, well, on that theme, we are in this Christmas season, and in this Christmas time, we often think about Christ's birth, and one of the first things that is mentioned in the scriptures about him is his His genealogy, and we know that his genealogy um, is not a perfect genealogy. The people who came before Christ um, were not perfect people, and that's actually a wonderful lesson for us all. I have said before that I do believe that one of the things that could save um, our church theology is is the idea of family history. How we um, are can be pulled together from all sorts of different places into one big eternal family. I love the idea that it doesn't matter um, necessarily if who you who who you were, as long as you're trying to be like Christ. And um, we could take some of those ideas about family history, some of those things that we we um, can save all of those who've gone before and and put it towards um, the present and the future. And especially with looking at some of those people who feel like they might not belong in our families. They do. They do belong. And that should be something that we shout from the rooftops with with within our church. And unfortunately, we're a little bit exclusionary. A lot exclusionary, actually. But we can be better. We can be better. Um, and so I guess from my family to yours, um, Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Um, the whole Dialogue family. Thanks.
7: It always struck me when I was a kid that every Christmas Eve we would read um, the Gospel, accounts of Jesus' birth, and we'd have to slam shut Luke and open up Matthew if you wanted to get what I saw in the nativity on our coffee table, the nativity with the shepherds and the wise men, both. Um, it's interesting, I think, to separate them and to look at what each of Matthew and Luke are trying to accomplish on their own. If all you read was Matthew, you would think that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And that's it. Uh, Matthew goes over his birth, in, or his birth in a class and nothing else. Um, Matthew is really interested in royalty. He's interested in wise men. Um, the Magi from the East is interested in, in Herod. Um, he's, in, in, he's interested in Joseph, too. Um, because I think Matthew is really emphasizing um, Jesus in a Jewish context. He's interested in showing how Jesus um, fulfills the Hebrew Bible, um, a Jesus who, like Moses, flees into Egypt and returns, a Jesus who is descended um, from David through his uh, presumably uh, adopted father, Joseph. But Luke, on the other hand, and Luke, um, we get Mary. We get the denunciation, we get Mary's hymn, um, we get her interaction with Simeon, and Luke is really interested in Jesus' interactions with the poor, uh, with shepherds, um, with uh, Simeon and Anna, the two people at the temple. Um, Luke is interested in Jesus, who is a savior of the cast out and injured. Um, And the marginal in society, and and putting these two gospels side by side instead of just one after another mashed together into a single narrative, really, I think, illustrates the many, many different ways we can read Jesus, the many things that Jesus can be for us.
9: As we come to the close of 2023, I find myself thinking not so much about Christ's birth, but instead about his life, about his ministry, and the forms uh, that it took. So uh, I'm thinking about the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, and this is a great reflection uh, of what Christ's ministry looks like. And so in just a few pages of scripture, um, here's a little bit about what happens. Uh, Matthew starts by saying that Christ is going throughout every city, village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And I think it's significant that whoever recorded these scriptures makes a distinction that Christ is preaching and he's showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So he's teaching the people who are often gathered in huge crowds, uh, describing the gospel And then we get to see what the gospel looks like in action. Early in the chapter, the Savior disembarks a ship. A man with palsy is brought to him. Jesus stops and heals him. As he goes along, he stops again and calls Matthew, who is sitting at the receipt of custom, to be a disciple. Then, while having a discussion with the Pharisees, Jairus comes along requesting that Christ come with him to heal his sick daughter. So Jesus sleeps immediately with him and and with a multitude that's following along. On his way, a woman touches his garment, and by that act of faith, Christ heals her. He could have kept going, the deed was done, the woman is healed, but he stops and asks after her. His disciples are impatient with the interruption and wonder why on earth he would bother to try to identify one woman among the throngs of people who are pressing in around him. Still, he singles her out. Daughter, be of good comfort, he says, acknowledging her great faith and letting her know of God's love and peace. Others worry that the disruption has prevented Christ from the task at hand. He might be too late. Fear not, the master says and continues on his way, knowing I'm sure that the work of the Lord could hardly be hindered by stopping to do the work of the Lord. Reaching Jairus' house, he takes the now-dead girl by the hand and simply raises her back to life. As he departs her home, two blind men follow, and he again stops and heals them, touching his hands to their eyes. As those men leave, other people come out to him with a man possessed of an evil spirit, and he casts out the devil. The chapter concludes telling us that this is how it was with Jesus, going about cities and villages, teaching and preaching and healing among the people. So I'm thinking about Christ's ministry. Um, his life and how it can't be contained by particular events. Uh, And it certainly didn't follow any clearly outlined itineraries. Instead, it reflected the love and compassion that God has for each of his children and his knowledge and understanding of their individual needs.
0: In years past, when we were together as a family during December, we tried to follow an Advent practice of lighting a white candle and reading a series of excerpts from the Scriptures, every Sunday evening for the four Sundays before Christmas Eve, and then lighting all the white candles plus a red candle on Christmas Eve, and playing out a nativity scene and story. As we started dividing out into four households, now with 11 grandchildren among them, we do well to gather for Christmas Eve, and that's not always possible. This year, for example, taking account of weather concerns, travel difficulties, and in-law families That are also important, Linda and I expect to be home alone on Christmas Eve. This is likely to be our most restful and relaxed Christmas in memory. The real prospect of being home alone for Christmas has made me reflective about holidays, holy days. My life experience is quite different between Easter, the Holy Week preceding, and the Lenten period before that, and Christmas. That Easter... Holy Week Lenten period has usually been a quiet, contemplative, richly spiritual experience for me. By contrast, the Christmas celebrations are loud and bright and full of family and togetherness. It might even sound like a confession, but I tend to think of Christ for Easter and family for Christmas. But there was one Christmas during the time I was a missionary in South Korea that felt different. That was so many decades ago that mails were reliable but timing was not, and overseas phone calls were only possible from a central office that felt like it operated by appointment only. One of the two Christmases I was in country, our mission gathered all the missionaries in Kwangju for two days of celebration together. The mission president arranged with all the parents for a letter and a small gift that he could distribute on Christmas Day. Come Christmas Eve, I had not been able to call home, and I happened to know that no letter had arrived for me. I felt alone and isolated, isolated even though I was among a big group of not particularly reverent friends and companions and fellow missionaries. I took myself off a little way, feeling sad for myself. While I was walking, some of the experiences related in the Gospels came to mind including Matthew 26, where, culminating in verse 40, in a place called Gethsemane, Jesus went to pray, and when he came back to the disciples, he found them asleep, and he said, What could ye not watch with me one hour? And then I had one of those rare-for-me kind of experiences that seems to be a voice from elsewhere. The Word said... I know what it feels like to be alone among friends. You are not in fact alone and all will be well, but this feeling is a way you might know me better. May you have a joyous Christmas season with family, however that works for you, and also some kind of learning that helps you know Christ one step better than last year.